0: All right, two things. First of all, Greg Fields does not have the rights to bow ties. If I hear one more comment about Greg Fields, Paul Asturbin is going to come out on Easter morning. And secondly, Scott Sutton, I don't think I look like Colonel Sanders. That was not cool. Not even cool. Turn to Hebrews chapter 3 and we'll pray. God, we are thankful for, I'm thanking you in advance for how we're going to spend the next few minutes. I'm thankful for how we spent the last few, surrounded by people that we love, singing about a God that we love, singing true things back to you, about you, declaring great things about who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. I count it a sweet and rare privilege, even though we do it weekly, I count it a scandalous privilege that we get to gather this morning freely, enjoying you and enjoying each other and enjoying your word in our language, in our lap. Lord, I pray these next few minutes will bring you glory in how we spend it. A few things also we want to lift up before we move into the word ourselves. I want to pray for another pastor and his family. I want to pray for Stephen Cotton and for Kavanaugh Methodist Church. Lord, I want to pray for a brother who probably has a million different expectations placed on his life and his ministry. And Lord, I want to pray that you would refine those expectations to be in line with your word so that he can preach and teach and stand and deliver week in, week out, and that your people will be fed at Kavanaugh Methodist. Lord, we pray that you will raise up this church and grow this church so that they can serve alongside us, that we can serve alongside them. We pray for your glory in and among and through them. We pray for health, Lord. We pray for weekly meals. We pray that the saints will be equipped week in, week out, the Kavanaugh Methodist. Pray, too, that you would guard Stephen's heart from just gravitating toward doing a job, but that he would see it as a calling, that you would guard his heart from viewing himself as a professional, but he would see himself as a shepherd, responsible to serve it up week week in, week out, and to shepherd and guide your people in truth. Lord, also this morning, we wanna lift up some officials. I wanna pray for our Supreme Court justices. Lord, I feel like we, in some ways, are standing in um, at the edge of a Grand Canyon of heartbreak. Should marriage be defined or redefined from how you've defined it? And Lord, I pray that you would guard hearts. I know and trust that the King's heart is water in your hand, and I pray for the hearts of the justices. That you would guide them to keep in step with, to walk in alignment with how you defined marriage ages ago. And Lord, lastly, this morning, before we climb into the word, I wanna pray for another family in the far corners. I wanna pray for Jake and Steph. Amen. If you're here this morning with uh, a family member who is at Crosspoint, Person or crosspoint visitor, we're glad you're here. I, I need to prepare you. We don't um, I love the thought of kind of light fare on a holiday, but it's never really happened and it's not going to happen this morning either so it's be a hearty meal and uh, if, it's, if it's too much for you then I hope that um, that you'll trust that this is what we do every week. so we're just doing what we do every week. Hebrews chapter three is where we are right now. I'm going to read a section of Scripture, and then I'm going to sort of give you a map for the morning, how we're going to spend our time together, where we're going. It's helpful to know where you're going in order to make the journey. So that's my plan. I'm going to begin in chapter 3, verse 7, and read all the way through the end of the chapter. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness Every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. If you would, put that famously lame. I have famously lame pictures. That was one I'm putting up just kind of show you a plan for the morning. I'll try and decipher it. I know if you're in the corners, you won't be able to see it. If you're in front of it, you may not be able to make sense of it. So that's okay. I'll help you make sense of it. On the far corner here, it's kind of a timeline. On the far corner is Abraham, around 2,000 years before Christ. I have it placed at about 1,500 years before Christ, 1,500 B.C., the Exodus. The Exodus actually took place about 1,400 to 1,300 B.C., But 1,500 is easy for me to remember, these 500-year increments. It's just easier to remember. So place the Exodus at 1,500 B.C. 1,000 B.C. is just there for a marker. The exile, which would be the Assyrian invasion and then Babylonian exile, is sort of the middle of that millennium before Christ. You see the little, little, not parentheses, the little deal there where it says exile. And then it says post-exilic context right above that. Okay. And then, right at the center, where you see a cross and you see this awesome, awesomely drawn empty tomb, that's what that is. Just so you don't know, in case you were wondering. That's um, right above it, it says Hebrew church context. That would be the new church, is right after that, the new church context. And then on the far right, it says our context, CF, Crossman Fellowship, Easter 2013. Now, across the top is part one, part two, and part three. Part one, context is the Exodus okay, It's gonna be important that you have a lay of the land this morning this sermon has layers it has three layers and this first layer is going to be the, the Exodus the ancient Israel Israel context okay the second layer or part two is the Hebrew church context and then the third layer is our context Leave that up there for maybe five minutes or so, and then kill it in case somebody wants to look at it. <clears throat> Let me show you kind of how this lays out in our scripture, and why this thing is broken down into three parts. Hebrews chapter three, verses seven through eleven, are is an excerpt that's taken from Psalm ninety-five. Psalm ninety-five was written post-exile. That's where it says post-exilic context. There are actually four layers to this sermon that I'm leaving out a layer because it's not necessary. And that layer is after the exile, after they're pulled off into Babylon, they come back, they rebuild the temple, they write Psalm 95. And they sing it in the newly rebuilt temple. And what Psalm 95 is about, it's about the exodus. So we're going to leave out that little portion of the context. But we're going to focus on what that psalm is about, which is verses 7 through 11, and then the second layer is going to be verses 12 through 19, the Hebrew context, and then we're going to apply it to our context, okay? Give you a little layout, a little plan for the morning. I want you to see where we're going because it's important to make the journey with me. It's not a complicated sermon, but if you don't have a good layout, a good sense of where we're going, you could get lost in it. Okay, so we're going to start with the first context. This excerpt, verses 7 through 11, is taken from Psalm 95. Psalm 95, I told you, is written post-exile. The first two-thirds of the psalm are an invitation to come worship, come worship and bow down. It's very invitational, very joyful, come worship and bow down. But the last third of it is warning, don't do what your fathers did in the exile. Don't do what they did in the wilderness, or else you could fall in the wilderness, shy of the promised land, like they did. Now, let's take a look at that. Psalm 95 points back to two specific incidents. You could say three, but we'll just call it two. Turn to Exodus chapter 17. Some of you who have been here in these last few weeks, this will be a little bit of a refresher. For those of you who haven't been here, this will be context building for this first Section first layer regarding ancient Israel. The psalm is pointing back to really two references. This first one is in Exodus chapter 17. The second one is in Numbers chapter 13. That's the first two places we're going to look this morning. Now, if you were here the last few weeks, you kind of have a sense of where this is going. This will be a good refresher and one that you'll need because it's going to have application later. And if you're hearing it for the first time, hopefully it'll give you a sense of context. Chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. They've been drawn out of Egypt by this point. They've crossed the Red Sea. Verse 7, in Chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Water's pretty important, so that's a pretty big deal. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Now, it's first of all, it's important to see that he's equating, in some ways, testing the Lord with quarreling with his leadership. Man, that, that, you can have a sermon alone on that. Because in the home, maybe a wife is having a difficult time following her husband. This is a great passage to land on and go, wait a second. God has set up maybe frail leadership in my home, but leadership nonetheless, and I need to follow that leadership because to quarrel with a leader, a God-appointed leader, is to test God. So that's the first thing we see going on here. Let's continue. But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, "'Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst?' So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massah, which means testing, and Meribah, which means quarreling, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? There's sort of the implication. How could he possibly be among us if we have a need unmet? Most of my journey of faith, reading about ancient Israel, I've spent most of my journey of faith thinking, what a bunch of buffoons. How could they possibly be so ridiculous? They just crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. They've seen the plagues. How could they possibly do these sorts of things? And then I think about my grown life, at times where God has has taken me across Red Sea, or where I've seen mighty acts of judgment, where I've seen his hand at work, and then I do this very thing right here. Is the Lord among us or not? How could he possibly be among us if we have a need Unmet. That's the first little reference here in Psalm 95 that the Hebrews preacher brings into their context, this Meribah and Massa context, quarreling with leadership and doubting his presence among them because they had an unmet need. Now, here's the keep your finger in Exodus 17, but turn over to Numbers chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13 is in some ways sort of the pivot point for the rest of the story of the journey in the wilderness. It is the tipping point, maybe what we would call it. You'd think it'd be the golden calf, sort of like the most graphic, ugly sin that could possibly take place. This is the ugliest sin of ancient Israel right here in this passage. Starting in chapter 13, beginning in verse 25. (laughs) Verse 25. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. This is early on in the wilderness experience. God told Moses to send 12 people over into the promised land to check it out. 12 spies, one from each tribe. They go over to the promised land. They spend, I can't remember, 40 days or something like that spying out the land. And they come back with a report. And that's where we are, this context right here. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation, and they showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, We came to the land to which you sent us, and it sure enough flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit, hark. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides that, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negeb. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. Now, this descendants of Anak there, that's, those are the folks that are called the Nephilim. We don't know a whole lot about these jokers other than they were just mooses. If that's plural, moose, meese. They, they were big, big jokers. They were... The, Genesis chapter 6 says that that the sons of God and the daughters of women had babies. Now, we don't know what that means, and there's lots of sensational thought. We don't need to really get all bogged down and just know that these were some big jokers, these sons of Anak, these Nephilim. So this is the report they give, fortified cities, big cities at that, and not only that, there's some big old jokers in the land over there, okay? Verse 30, but Caleb... Caleb is the first guy we hear that protests this. Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We're not able to go up against the people, for they're stronger than we. So they brought, the people to, the, brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like we grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. Chapter 14. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Sound familiar? The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our wee ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And here's the second person we hear from. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we passed through to spy it out is exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey... Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel." Some things you see at play here in these two stories, Massa and Meribah, and then there at Kadesh is you see fear. You see mistrust of God. You see concern, which makes sense. Concern actually makes sense if you kind of think about it. You see doubt. You see quarreling. You see rebellion. You see resisting God's leadership. And the irony here is they had seen God's hand first, first hand. They crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. They heard Sinai quake. They heard God speak from heaven at Sinai and had to change their depends. They were there hand. They saw the mighty acts of judgment, yet these things are at play, fear, mistrust, doubt, quarreling, rebellion, and resisting his leadership. And then Caleb and Joshua have a clarion message here. And the clarion message is, Don't fear the giants and don't go back to Egypt. Don't fear the giants and don't go back to Egypt. These Nephilim, these descendants of Anak, must have been pretty scary dudes. I'm trying to think about my context. When I was a kid, the the most realistic show on television was Land of the Lost and the Sleeve Stacks gave me bad dreams. The Sleestacks were serious. Those of you who are my vintage, you know what I'm talking about. Slea stacks were bad. Now, they shot in a- little bows and arrows, and the little arrow would go about 10 feet. It had no trajectory, no power, but it still scared me to death. Slea stacks were scary. So I'm thinking about our context, maybe for our kids, and I thought maybe the orcs, maybe the orcs would be a good version of what are these scary sons of a- Anak. These Nephilim that are all over the land where we're like a bunch of grasshoppers. Thinking about that context, we can imagine that might be pretty scary. But Caleb's message is, we are able to overcome them. Joshua's message to Israel is their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Joshua's message to this nation of Israel is, do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. They are our dinner because God is on our side. Don't fear the giants, Israel. And don't you dare go back to Egypt. I told you to keep a finger in Exodus chapter 17, flip back over there and look at the chapter in front of that, Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16 Beginning in verse 3. Excuse me, and beginning in verse 1. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they have departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. I don't know about you, but I'm reading that account and I'm thinking, seriously? You've seen the mighty acts of judgment. You've walked across the Red Sea on dry ground. And for you, it looks like all that's important to you are pots full of meat, full bellies, You made bricks without straw as a slave. And this is all you're concerned about is pots full of meat, full bellies, full of bread. You were enslaved making bricks. You were literally owned. And for you, Israel, all you want is pots full of meat. If you want food, at least be hungry for the food that was promised you, milk and honey in the land that was promised to your forefather, Abraham. But you want pots full of meat and bellies full of bread back in Egypt. You're not drinking from cisterns you didn't dig. You're not living in houses that you didn't build. You're not living in the land that was promised to you, and all you want is pots full of meat and bellies full of bread. It's easy to look at that and think, man, that's unfathomable. They are truly buffoons. But here's the reality about Egypt for them, and this is going to hold true in these next two layers. We're about to finish up the first layer. Here's the problem with Israel. Here's the reason Egypt was so appealing to them, because it was predictable. Egypt was appealing to them because it was visible. It was measurable. Eat this pot of meat. Make those bricks right there. Go to bed, get up, and do it again the next day. The, thing, the reason that's appealing to Israel, apparently, is because in that case, they don't have to depend on God. They can just depend on themselves. I eat the pot of meat that's given me. I make the bricks I'm appointed to make. And then I move on, and then there's tomorrow. Where's God in that? They don't have to depend on God. And the sad consequences, when they fear the giants, and when they pine... For Egypt, the sad consequences is that they lose out on what's been promised to them. And proof of that is one million sandy graves in the wilderness. A million sandy graves. Now, for the Hebrews context, turn over to Hebrews chapter 3. That's the first layer, and that's important, because you're going to need that for the next one. Hebrews chapter 3. I've already read this passage, but I want to focus in on verses 12 through 19 and read them again so they're sort of fresh on our minds. Now, you remember the verses 7 through 11 were pointing back to, to Psalm chapter 95, pointing back to the Exodus. saying, don't harden your hearts like they did at Meribah, Massa, and Kadesh. Don't mistrust, don't disbelieve. And then here it picks up in verse 12, with in some ways... The preacher is using in this Hebrews context that Psalm 95 reference as an illustration for the same thing that could happen to Hebrew church. It's an important warning, and listen where he takes it in verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, like your forefathers did 1,500 years earlier. We can import some of those thoughts to where this makes sense to us, like your forefathers did 1,500 years earlier when they didn't trust their God. Don't do what they did and have an evil, unbelieving heart that leads you to fall away from the living God. Instead, the remedy for that, the treatment for that, is exhort one another every single day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked Hebrew church for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness, 100, or excuse me, a million sandy graves? And to whom did he swear they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see Hebrew's church that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. In some ways, the Hebrew's preacher here in this context becomes a New Testament version of Caleb and Joshua. And he has the same message. Don't fear the giants, and don't you dare go back to Egypt. Don't fear the giants, and don't you dare go back to Egypt. Now, their giants were different, but they were just as tall and just as scary. In the Hebrew's church, their giants, their version of the Nephilim... I have a little list here that we'll just kind of work our way through. First of all, there's Rome. There's danger of death if you follow Christ in Rome. We believe they're in the Roman context. I believe they're in the Roman context. If you follow Christ in a Roman context, the potential there could be that you become a human torch in Nero's garden. That's a pretty big giant. That's a pretty scary giant, maybe even more scary than the Nephilim. You might end up lighting... Nero's garden. Some other giants in their context were the Jews. This is a little known fact that some of the worst oppression for for Christian believers, new believers in the early church context, came from the hands of Jews. Even worse than Rome, came from the hands of Jews. So family members, friends, people you may have grown up with, if you follow Christ, you may face the worst persecution from those that you went to high school with from those that you grew up with, other Jews. That's a giant and a tall one. You might also face the giant of poverty. If you follow Christ in this context, in the, in the Hebrews context, you may actually lose your job. So much of the commerce in the Roman Empire had to do with pagan worship. So that's a given. It would be like, for example, if you had a job in the porn industry and you followed Christ, I hope you know you couldn't continue in the porn industry. And that would be the case here in the New Testament context. If they're involved in some sort of commercial involvement in pagan worship and they follow Christ, they lose their job. Likely, they quit their job. And likely, it would be very hard to find another one if they're a professing believer. So, there's some big giants in the Hebrews context. You could die at the hands of Rome, you could die at the hands of Jews. You could face poverty, you could face exclusion, and you could become an outcast. I studied the Roman context as much as I could without getting dirty. I'm gonna tell you right now, if you do some Google searches or you go to some good references and you try and study the Roman context, it's vile. But it's oh so familiar. You heard me pray for the Supreme Court justices a few minutes ago. And you know what, if you pay attention to the news, you know what's in the news these last couple of weeks. I found it interesting that this topic of same-sex marriage is not a new topic. And in fact, it was practiced in the Roman Empire. I found that Nero himself likely had three marriages to men. Two of those likely, he was the bride. You think this is a new thing that we're dealing with now? And in the Roman context, I'm thinking, man, if you are going to speak out against that, and you're going to say, no, that's not right. God did not design that that way. He defined marriage as a man and a woman. Likely in that context, you're going to take a beating. Especially if the emperor is getting married to dudes. Man, there's some giants in Rome. Rome. Jews. Poverty. Exclusion. Exclusion. You could be an outcast if you oppose things like that. You could have a bad reputation. That's a giant, let's be honest. All of us want to have a good reputation. Can you appreciate that even at face value, even at that, even on its lightest, lightest expense of following Christ, you could have a bad reputation. That's a giant. And the Hebrews preacher is saying, you know what? Don't fear those giants. Don't fear those giants. Listen to this passage. Don't even turn there. I want you to listen to it. Hear from the Hebrews pastor in Hebrews 13. Listen how he speaks to their giants. Just listen. Let brotherly love continue, church. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Isn't that interesting? Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. You hear him speaking to their giants? Listen to what he says next. So we can confidently say, Hebrews Church, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And the Hebrews preacher is like a New Testament Caleb and Joshua saying, don't fear the giants. Don't you dare fear the giants. And the second part of his message is, don't go back to Egypt. Their version of Egypt and the Hebrews Church looks like they wanted to go back to Judaism a respectable fallback. I mean, they're Jews in the first place after all, right? It would be a respectable fallback for them to go back to Judaism, it seems. And he speaks specifically to that in Hebrews chapter 8. Listen to this passage. Really, the whole book is about this. So to try and find a passage that sort of condenses it is difficult. But listen to this passage in Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 6. Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old covenant, than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. Just for, imagine for a moment that you grew up as a Jew, you followed Christ at great cost, and imagine for a moment you're on the bubble thinking about going back to Judaism. And hear the Hebrews preach preacher. Say, man, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. And then in verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. Don't go back to Egypt, Hebrew church. Don't you dare go back to Judaism. Man, this is not a new message in the New Testament. Paul had the same message for the Galatian church. Listen to this teaching. Galatians chapter 1, excuse me, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You hear the connection to slavery? Egypt? Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. The context for the Galatian church, they've been listening to people called Judaizers that have been sneaking into the church, and they've been adding something to grace. And specifically, what they've been adding to the, to the message of grace in the gospel is you got to get circumcised also. And Paul says, you know what? I hope the knife slips and you sing soprano if you mess with the gospel. That's graphic. That's Paul's illustration. So don't get mad at me. Man, that's how dangerous, how dangerous it is to mess with the gospel. And Paul says, don't you dare go back to any version of Judaism. Don't you dare go back and even grab their practices in hopes that it will somehow get you saved. Paul is strong against those sort of issues. Listen to what he says in Romans chapter 7. Or do you not know, brothers, for I I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Listen, this illustration is beautiful. Thus a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage, and accordingly she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies now, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, here he explains his illustration. My brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. So that you may belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. While we were living in our flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. You hear the language of slavery? The Hebrews preacher says, don't go back to Egypt. Paul said, don't you dare go back to Egypt. The illustration he uses here would be likening to marrying Christ and then saying, you know what? I'm going to bail on a living Christ and go back and marry a corpse. I miss my old husband. So we go marry a dead man. Paul says that's ridiculous. Man, the Hebrews church is playing with fire and thinking about going back to some sort of respectable version of faith. It makes me think about the second John 9 verse. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both Father and the Son. Bailing on the Son means bailing on God. But the reason I think it's interesting and appealing to the Hebrews church is it's predictable, it's measurable, it's visible circumcise this wash this tithe your dent your 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 dill and your mint and your cumin make you feel good getting some checks in the block man i can see it as a easy fallback cuz it's a human way it seems that the new testament hebrews aren't a whole lot different from the ancient israelites and I wonder if they're a whole lot different from the rest of mankind. It seems we like visible, we like predictable, and we like measurable because there is where we don't have to depend on Jesus anymore. Do you see that? The Hebrews preacher, man, he says, you go back to that kind of stuff and you're not having to depend on Jesus anymore. Cut this watch that tie this. Feel good? Man. And he tells them the problem here is you can lose out on what's been promised you. If you fear the giants, Rome, Jews, poverty, exclusion. If you go back to Egypt, Judaism, you can lose out on what's been promised you. Proof is a million sandy graves. That's the proof that he has right here in verse 17. With whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Proof, Hebrews Church, is a million sandy graves. Now, I want to make a brief comment about next week's sermon. I'm not at the end of this one yet. I'm close. Second layer's done. Third layer's smooth. You've you've done the work for the third layer, but let me... plant plant something in your ear for next week. Next week, we're going to deal about whether this is just a quality of life threat. See, there are some that think that this is not a real threat about you're not going to, you're not going to enter glory and think it's just a quality of life threat. And I'm going to tell you, I mean, I think it's people that are respectable. I don't think it's like, you know, some sort of villain wearing all black or anything. I think it's respectable folks, but I'm telling you, I think it's, ugly gymnastics. It's not even good gymnastics. It would be like an offensive lineman trying to do gymnastics on a balance beam. It's going to be ugly. And when you try and reduce these sort of threats to quality of life issues, I think you're neutering the book of Hebrews. This book is potent. And it has some very important warnings. And this is the biggest warning of the book. You bail on Jesus, you don't go to glory. I don't know why that's so hard for people to hear. <laughs> you bail on Jesus, and you don't enter his, his, his promises. You don't walk in his promises. Next week, we're going to disassemble that. The Hebrews preacher uses these lesser and greater devices throughout the book. If this is true, then how true will this be? He does it all through the book. If this is true, a million sandy graves, how grave will it be if you bail on Jesus? It's all through the book. Man, if you fear the giants and you go back to Egypt, you're going to miss out on what's been promised you. Now, the third layer. You've done the work in the first two. So the third is gravy. This passage starts in verse 7 with therefore as the Holy Spirit says. I love that word says because it points out that this message was just as living. A message that a a psalm that had been written post-exile, 700 years likely, 400 years likely before the Hebrews church. That the Hebrews preacher says, as the Holy Spirit says, that's a living message for that Hebrews church. And we can say it this morning, as the Holy Spirit says that it's a living message for this church right now, Easter 2013. As the Holy Spirit says, I have the awesome privilege of being Caleb and Joshua this morning. And the Hebrews preacher. I have good company, a cloud of witnesses this morning to say two things. Don't fear the giants, and don't go back to Egypt. Don't fear the giants, and don't go back to Egypt. Now, our giants, a lot like Rome, surprisingly like Rome. Poverty, not so much. I put poverty in quotes, because yeah, I think even on your worst day, if you were just the most out loud Christian in our context, I find it hard to believe you're going to starve, I know for sure you're not going to starve at one Fellowship because the people of God are going to come around you. If you lose your job because of your faith, you think the church is not going to be there to help you through that? But I put poverty in quotes because your, your financial interests might be influenced in some way. If, for example, you say, you know what? I'm not going to work on Sundays because I want to gather with God's people. I need to eat. I need to hear the teaching and preaching of God's Word, so I'm not going to work on Sundays. And they say, well, you're not going to get money that you would be paid on that Sunday. And you're like, okay. It's not really a giant, but we could call him like a, we'll call him a sleestag. He's not an orc. Maybe because of your faith, you may find that you may not be able to make the money that you would like to make to keep up with the Joneses. Let's put it that way. Every time I think about that comment, I think about Bud and Jill and Annie and John Mark. You must hate that. You know what I'm saying, keep up with the Joneses. You may find that there may be a point in time where your decision for a faith decision about gathering God's people, for example, about walking with your family in an intentional shepherding sort of way, where your commercial influence influences, or your com- commercial decisions, financial decisions influence that. And you say, you know what? That's a giant. I'll quote quotes around it. Slee Now, here's a bigger giant Rome. I put quotes around Rome because we're not a whole lot different from Rome right now. I mean, there's, it's different. I'm not going to equate it as the same, but there are some things that are very similar. Rome must have been so attractive in that context. Rome was worldly. You see some of their architecture, some of their, their statues, you know, a real eye for beauty, an appreciation of knowledge, the things that we would appreciate now, the things that we value now. Variety of thought, acceptance of variety of thought. And I think about our version of Rome is also worldly and attractive. And if you find yourself in some way wanting to speak out against something, be ready. Be ready. If you've been watching the news this week, you've probably been you probably noticed this guy named Dr. Ben Carson. Anybody know who I'm talking about, Dr. Ben Carson? neurosurgeon from Johns Hopkins? This guy, he was interviewed, and he made some comments about marriage. He said, God defined marriage as a man and a woman. To redefine, no group can redefine marriage. God defined marriage as a man and a woman. And he referenced three different groups, and he has taken a beating for what he said. He was supposed to speak at Johns Hopkins' Graduation commencement ceremony and a bunch of students have gotten together and saying, we, we don't want him to speak. And he's like, okay, well, I don't want to, it's a special day for you all so I don't want to rain on your parade. I mean, the guy's been very charitable, very gracious in the whole thing. But I'm telling you, he's taken a public beating and all he said was, God defines marriage and no group can redefine it. No group can redefine it. He defined it as a man and a woman. I'm telling you right now, if you speak out about some of these giants, what's worldly and attractive. It's on every television channel. I mean, we're inundated with it. Think about what's happened since 1996, the Defense of Marriage Act, that was signed by President Bill Clinton, ironically. And then a couple of years later, he's saying, nah, I changed my mind. Whatever. What's happened since 1996? Man, it's on every television channel. And I would be lying if I said that some of those personalities, I mean, they're even on like um, reality TV. Like every reality show has got to have somebody that's homosexual on it. And if it's a team, it's got to have a homosexual team. And we are saturated with it. We are inundated with it. And I would be lying if I said they weren't interesting. I really would be lying. They're interesting. I mean, I enjoy watching folks that are interesting. But we have to realize that we are being saturated and inundated with things that are not God's design, and we can't let the giants scare us. We can give an account for the hope within and speak truthfully about what God designed in man and woman, like Dr. Ben Carson did. And when you do, be ready, because you're likely going to take a beating. Somebody is not going to like it. They're going to say, and you're being hateful. Among other things, <laughs> poverty maybe, Sleestack. stack. Rome, Nephilim. It's big. We have our version of the Jews too. We've been here 10 years. I wish, I bet I, it's not a lot, but I bet I can count on two hands the number of times where I've heard someone say that we've been referred to as a cult. And you know what's funny is the people that are saying that are other professing believers. Here we are praying for other churches in our community. And other professing believers would say that we're a cult because we're preaching the word verse by verse, because we have corporate worship. That was what one person said. They must be a cult because they have corporate worship. What? We take the supper every week. We we actually want to walk through the word and do what it says in matters of discipline for example. They must be a cult from other believers. Those believers should be convicted. I hope and pray that the Holy Spirit convicts who's ever said those sort of things so that they can't sleep at night until they go back and whoever they said that to, they ask for forgiveness. I think that's a dangerous sin. When you call something that the Holy Spirit's doing not from the Holy Spirit, that's dangerous. It's happened to us. I'm going to tell you right now, the early church, in fact, was thought to be a cult because they thought they were cannibals because they ate his flesh and drank his blood can you imagine them hearing that imagine the roman church sitting around hey man they said we were cannibals we're like really (laughs) pass me some juice or wine i guess it would have been wine that kind hand me a piece of bread really but man this is at the hands of other believers man we have our version of jews we have our giants and they're every bit as tall as the Nephilim the sons of Anak add to that the giants of independence and free thinking and rationalism if you trust in something by faith something that you can't see something that you don't have proof of then man you have committed intellectual suicide and you're just plain stupid it's a giant does anybody want to be thought stupid? anybody? I don't want that that's a giant for me I value being thought, at least have a head on my shoulders. You know how those giants can speak? Stop thinking for yourself and, let's, and, and, and letting someone else tell you what you're supposed to think. That, that's what they say. Those are giants. We have our version of them. And here's what I say to those giants. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me amen (laughs) that makes my heart glad the lord is my helper i will not fear what can man do to me man when you get to the place where you fear god more than you fear man you will be set free you will be set free you're going to take a beating but you will be set free don't fear the giants (laughs) and don't go back to egypt This is the message for this church. Don't fear the giants and don't go back to Egypt. It's obvious our version of Egypt, an obvious Egypt would be to fall back in love with the world like Demas. Demas fell back in love with the world, didn't walk with Paul in his ministry anymore. Less obvious, though, a respectable fallback might be a Christianity that doesn't in any way collide with the giants. Hear what I'm saying there now. I'm not calling all the other churches fake Christianity. Let the Scripture identify what's not genuine. We may find conviction here for ourselves. A respectable Egypt that we could fall back on would be a Christianity that keeps us from having to do business with the Nephilim. A Christianity that never says anything about the giants, that never says anything about what God designed and how He designed it. A Christianity that doesn't collide with anything financial. I mean, it's possible. A version of Christianity that says, you know what? Anything financial trumps anything Christian for me, because I got to provide for my family. I mean, I don't think I haven't heard it. I got to provide for my family, right? Man, we have our versions of Egypt Christianity that doesn't collide with anything Roman. That doesn't collide with anything having to do with difficult matters. A Christianity that doesn't stew the stir the Jews, and I put quotes around the Jews. Christianity that doesn't make anybody uncomfortable. That could be a respectable fallback, couldn't it? A Christianity that doesn't stir the Jews at all. A Christianity that doesn't do any danger to whether we're excluded or included. A Christianity that doesn't in any way influence your reputation. Well, in a negative way, let me say that. Because your reputation, man, that's important. Christianity that doesn't influence your life plans. A Christianity that says, I could never go to the far corners of the field. I could never do anything dangerous. There are plenty of respectable fallbacks. You need to know and realize those options are there. For the Galatian church, I can imagine as they're sitting around thinking about circumcision or thinking about way they can get at least the Jews off their back, hey, maybe if we start circumcising again, and Paul says, you've lost the gospel in that. Paul said specifically to these churches, he said, you mess with that, you're messing with the gospel. Listen to this passage, Galatians chapter 1, verse 9. As, I have, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. You add anything to what the essence of the gospel is. Paul says, let him be accursed. Accursed. He had more to say to the Corinthian church about the potential messages out there. Listen to this passage. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 4. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, this is first century church. And there are already the implication that there are other Jesuses to be preached. He's not talking about different people. He's talking about preaching a message about a Lord that's contrary to what God's Word says. If anyone comes to you and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you received a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. you got to know that's the potential for any church. First century church, and they're already in danger of embracing other gospels. Man, we can find some respectable fallbacks. We won't have to look hard. Some respectable fallbacks that don't cause us to do any business with the Giants. And those respectable fallbacks, likely the things you're going to see in them, is they're predictable, they're measurable, and they're visible. I don't know what it is about us where we love predictable and measurable and visible. Because in those things, we don't have to rely on Jesus. Predictable, measurable, and visible. When I was getting to this point in preparation these last couple of weeks, I've been working on this sermon for a while. I was thinking about Shawshank Redemption. So those of you who have seen the movie Shawshank Redemption. Some interesting uh, characters that, a guy named Brooks, older guy that worked in the library that was let out, that couldn't take it on the outside, and he hung himself. And then there was Red that was so scared that when he got out, he was going to do the same Folks that seem to just almost have this attraction to slavery. Now, that's not slavery, but imprisonment, at least. I went some did, did some digging. I found a site called Quora, where people can just ask these various questions. And here's the question that was asked: Are there inmates who prefer the structure of prison life to freedom? Could there be a better solution for them than prison? Listen to this inmate who answers. Listen to what he says. While it's not said, I believe so. I've been in juvenile hall three times. Did two years in the California Youth Authority. I've been to four different prisons since the age of 14. So I've encountered thousands of inmates. A common theme is a lack of control over their lives. Some people can't control that little demon on their shoulder. So with no one watching you, you constantly... Or constantly like in prison and all the freedom of being on the outside, the structure of prison is vital. And while I hate to admit it, the structure of prison has helped me in my growth. The biggest thing it's taught me is responsibility. I'm accountable for every single thing I do in here and just the slightest slip up can cost me my chance of freedom. I have a heightened sense of awareness now and have no choice but to think about every action I make. Does it take prison for us to do that? It does for this guy. This has become embedded in me and I found it to be an asset. My responsibility and accountability has propelled me to now holding respectable executive positions in every group that I participate in as well as the admiration of some officers and free staff alike. Anecdotally, I'm glad for this guy because it doesn't sound like he'd make it on the outside. But in light of this message about how we seem to gravitate back towards slavery and imprisonment, it breaks my heart. So many of us can't handle freedom. We need something measurable, visible, predictable, so we don't have to depend on Jesus. Cut this. Tithe this. Wash this. Don't drink that. Do drink this. Don't eat that. Don't be this. Don't say this. Man, is that what Christianity is reduced to for you? That's a heartbreak. That's imprisonment. I found an account, an illustration from a guy named Martin Lloyd Jones. Wonderful preacher. Listen to this. Beautiful illustration. The guy's English was English. Listen to this illustration. Take the case of those poor slaves in the United States of America about a hundred years ago. There they were in a condition of slavery. Then the American Civil War came. And as a result of that war, slavery was abolished in the United States. But what had actually happened? All slaves, young and old, were given their freedom. But many of the older ones who had endured long years of servitude found it very difficult to understand their new status. They heard the announcement that slavery was abolished and that they were free. But hundreds, not to say thousands of times in their lives, after and experiences, many of them did not realize it. And when they saw their old master coming near them, they began to quake and tremble. And to wonder whether they were going to be sold. They were free. They were no longer slaves. The law had been changed, and their status and their position was entirely different. But it took them a very long time to realize it. You can still be a slave experimentally. We could say experientially, too. You can still be a slave experimentally, even when you are no longer a slave legally. You can be a slave in your own feelings when actually in respect of your position, you have been emancipated completely. So it is with the Christian. Man, that was such a graphic illustration that has so much travel for so many other passages of Scripture. But it shows in us our human nature to run right back to what's predictable, what's measurable, what's visible, And what is bondage? Bondage. Slavery. It promises full bellies, yet you miss out on God. Pot's full of meat, but you miss out on God. And you can lose out on what's been promised you. We're going to take our supper. And I want to turn to a passage in John chapter 6. If you'd like to turn there, this will be our context for the supper. John chapter 6. As you're turning there, I hope hope and pray that you've heard two things this morning. Don't fear the giants and don't go back to Egypt. You'll need to talk as families about what those giants are. Your giants, because they may be different from my giants. And your Egypt may be different from mine. But likely there's some enticing fallback out there. Likely there's some attractive replacement for a place of daily needy dependence on Jesus. And you, as families, need to work through that. Small, small group shepherds, some good stuff to talk about this next week. <laughs> I thought about John chapter 6. I don't know why it seems so familiar as I'm thinking about these pots full of meat. Thinking about the ancient Israelites. Hungry for pots full of meat, bellies full of bread. Jesus feeds the multitudes in John chapter 6. He walks on the water, the little center section there, verses 16 through 21. The crowd forms on the other side of the Sea of Galilee the next day. And in verse 25, it says, When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them. He doesn't even answer their question. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Pots full of meat. What he's about to say in the rest of this chapter is, I got no pots full of meat for you. I got no bellies full of bread for you. All I have for you is myself. That's what he's saying over the rest of this chapter. All I have for you is myself. Look what it takes place. He says, don't labor for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. So when they said th- then they said this to him, Jesus, we want something measurable. We want something visible. And we want something predictable. Look what they say. Okay, Jesus, what must we do? What do we wash? What do we cut? What do we tithe? Tell us what we must do to be doing the works of God. And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. The definite article the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That must have been wildly unsatisfying. Right? Jesus, we just asked you, just tell us what hoops to jump through. He says, this is the hoop. You believe on him whom he has sent. And what you'll find in believing on him and pursuing him is everything that you won't find in Egypt because you won't find in Jesus and following Jesus predictability. You won't find these visible measurements that you can measure your faith journey by. You won't find all these things that we so need so badly, these Predictable, visible, and measurable things. You'll find in Him, though, a dependence, a deep and daily abiding dependence, like a sheep for his shepherd. You'll find in Him that you'll need to grow in trusting Him. You'll find in Him what He promises is invisible and it's not predictable. And I love what he says later on in the chapter. Speaking of bread, in chapter 6, verse 50, he says this in regards to bread. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. You want bellies full of bread or do you want me? I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my bread flesh man oh that that would be enough I invite you to take the supper with us this morning if you are trusting Christ as your Savior and Lord this little cup and this little piece of bread represents for us a diet of Jesus, a dependence on Jesus. When we take this supper together weekly we're confessing we need the every hour. every hour. We're confessing that we have no work that's good enough. The only work that we confess and enjoy in this supper is Christ's work, his finished work, and his empty tomb. So this morning, as we take and eat, let's remember those things. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray that you would create in us a courage in facing giants and doing business with giants. With gentleness and respect. A courage in being salty, bright, and aromatic in a context where that won't come easy. And Lord, I pray that you would guard our hearts from easy fallbacks, where things are predictable and measurable and visible, but that we can walk by faith, not by sight. That we can trust and know and enjoy. A very risen Lord who is very seated at your right hand. Lord, stir us up by way of reminder on this Easter 2013 what faith is and what faith isn't. Guard us from other Gospels and other Jesuses. We want to enjoy your Son alone. We want to embrace the true Gospel and that alone. We're thankful for the sweet privilege of dining with you in these next few minutes. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If Christ had not been raised then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They're just plain dead like a bug. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead amen let's take and eat take and drink in faith